please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 24th of March, 2021. And it's time for another Morning Espresso. But before we get going, there's always a little bit of housekeeping to do. If you're watching live, you can click on the button below to hear the simultaneous translation in whatever language you choose from that list. We also have a Q&A button if you'd like to shoot over any questions. But you always have the option as well to send emails to nordeafunds at nordea.com. Right, for the first section this morning, we are going to be looking at ESG. And for that, I am joined by Julien Crier. Julien is our senior ESG data analyst within the responsible investment team. Julien, are you there? Good morning. Morning, Paul. Hi. You're actually based in Stockholm, aren't you? But you're not Swedish. I am. I'm actually from France and we'll guess from the accent. <laughs> Great. Well, this morning we, we um, invited you on to Morning Expresso because we had um, the sustainable financial disclosure regulation come into force on the 10th of March, so a couple of weeks ago. And that sort of lays down harmonized rules and, and, and disclosure rules in particular um, for financial market participants. Now, one of those is the uh, principal adverse um, uh, impacts or PAI. And I wondered if you could explain to us a little bit more about this PAI and what it is and what it means. Absolutely. Um, so this principal adverse impact is one of the main uh, disclosure requirements under the, the SFDR, uh, which is this a uh, landmark piece of legislation that requires all financial market participants in the EU to uh, disclose on sustainability issues. And that's included for mainstream funds with uh, additional requirement for products that claim that they have some ESG characteristic. Uh, so the SFDR is this very uh, big umbrella legislation and PI uh, is a key element of it. So to answer your question, uh, those, those principal adverse impacts, what are those? Uh, and the way the EU defines them is the negative uh, effect of uh, investment decision on sustainability. And that covers a very extensive array of, of ESG issues. And actually the EU defines 64 indicators uh, for that and it covers everything from a climate and the environment, uh, social and employee matters, how firms treat the employees, but also how they treat, treat the, the larger society uh, about human rights, corruption, anti-bribery. So it's really uh, this 360 views on all the most salient impact categories you can, you can think of. Um, and, and that means that uh, we'll have to measure the impact of our investment in companies. Um, but in the latest version of the text, uh, the legislator added the coverage for sovereign issuers. So when we invest in sovereign bonds, we'll have, for example, to measure the greenhouse gas in 
intensity of investors countries we invest in. So it's a, mm -hmm. it's, it's a very big piece of legislation that should be, bring about more transparency uh, and standardize a little bit how asset managers such as ourselves uh, measure sustainability and our impact. So, so like you say, very broad, more than 60 different uh, rules and regulations. I'm sure it's quite complex as well, uh, being a regulation. So maybe where are we in our journey in terms of uh, implementing the, these uh, principles of adverse impact? So we, we make uh, a lot of progress in very little time. It was a pretty challenging deadline to, to meet. <laughs> Uh, but uh, today, basically, what we have is we've uh, created our own ESG uh, pie calculation engine uh, in-house system where we can track and measure uh, any investment that we make uh, around the first batch of 20 indicators. So um, we'll be able to, to go and cover everything that the logo requires and, and, and actually a little bit more. Um, so we produce these impact metrics, both at the, the, the issuer level and the entity level, and uh, we'll be able to track uh, the individual investments, uh, what are the, the companies that are driving risk for us and what, what portfolios are, are concerned. And the exciting next step for us would really be to, to start to review those and, and start to take action. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how, how will that assessment now take place, you know, in the next weeks and months? How, how do you go about that? Yeah, I think, I think the first step will really to, to look at the performance of, of issuers. And that's, uh, that's where the ESG Quant team uh, and, and we will really focus. Uh, so we created this analysis engine that will take into account dozens of data sets uh, and compute metrics and score for, for those um, for those elements that you wants us to look at. So basically all companies have, have ne negative impacts. So I, I don't know one company that really don't directly or indirectly is emitting carbon to the atmosphere, for example. Mm. So uh, what's, what's important for us is to follow a, a risk-based approach where we try to flag and identify companies where uh, their high performance, their sustainability impacts pose an, an exit unacceptable sustainability risk for, for us and our clients. So we'll try to go beyond a basic ranking and try to take into account a variety of factors really. Uh, for example, our holding exposure, uh, we might uh, be more impactful if we focus where we have, uh, where we are a large shareholder, for example. Uh, but sometimes also we want to flag critically important risk, even if our holding exposure is not that great. Um, I think we also want to prioritize risks where we, we don't already have some mitigation measures in place. Uh, we're engaging with a lot of companies, so if we're already covering some of the risks, they might become a little bit more acceptable and we want to focus our effort elsewhere. Um, and finally, I think it's also important to focus on issuers uh, and companies. Uh, that combines several critical shortcomings, uh, even though maybe individually each risk factor would fly under the radar. So we will try to, to get smart about it. And that's the where the data science part of the model is going to be interesting. But it's it's not all about, about creating risk models and, and clever algorithm. I think the human parts of the process is also very important. 
uh, and and eventually you really want the 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 expert eyes of my RI uh, team colleagues to make a decision and take action. Um, and I, I think this 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 action in concrete terms they can they can they can be of two two ways. The first is really engaging, uh, having a honest discussion with those companies that we like as as higher risk to get more information, get their perspective, uh, but also challenge them uh, and try to bring about change and track that change over time, which is also very, very important. And finally, we can also with uh, when we, we can present some names to the RI committee uh, for exclusion. Uh, so if a company is deemed not eligible to, to investment, we can exclude them for all NAMS portfolio, and that's a decision that we, we don't like to take too too lightly because engagement is, is always the priority, but it's also a possible uh, a possible outcome of, of this pie journey. It sounds like you've got your work cut out for you both on the quantitative side and the qualitative side. So uh, so good luck with, with all of that. And uh, thank you, Julian, for, for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Great, so now we're gonna move on to the main section of today's Morning Espresso. And what we're gonna be doing today is looking at the recent uh, rise in bond yields and infl inflation expectations as, as well. And we're gonna see how asset classes have reacted to that. But perhaps more importantly, we're gonna provide you with perhaps some ideas on how to position your portfolio um, in this environment. So. Who better to have with us uh, for this theme than our resident senior macro strategist, Sebastian Gurley. Uh, but he's also gonna be joined by uh, Laurent uh, Gorgamans and Laurent is our global head of product management at Nordea Asset Management. Good morning, gentlemen, are you there? Good morning. Good morning, Paul. Hi. So perhaps to get things rolling, um, could you just remind us all uh, what happened to the yield curve in Q1 um, of this year, Sebastian? Sure, let's have a look at the, at the curve. Um, on it, what you can see is that the, the curve on, uh, in green was relatively low at the beginning of the year and then moved much higher um, uh, by now on the, on the blue line. And what you can see is that it's happening mostly with longer dated bonds. So looking about three years to 30 years moving a lot, but one year to three years staying relatively well anchored. Why is that? Because the Fed is not expected to hike or if it is expected to hike in the next three years, then just a little bit. But beyond that, the market expects the Fed to play catch up. It's being a more, much more optimistic about the future for two reasons. One, there's a 1.9 trillion fiscal package which has been approved and it's being disbursed. There's talk now today in the Wall Street Journal and the financial time of a 3 trillion uh, package which is coming in. And of course, there's a vaccination campaign which after uh, a week starting, you United States has been very successful, which means that the economy should be reopened by the summer. And, and so in terms of portfolio positioning, you know, what other macro factors do you think are, are important at this stage? Sure, it's what we call the reflation trade. So if we focus on the, on the next slide, what you can see is uh, have an idea what that reflation trade means. It means that the US economy is doing much better. It means also that the Chinese economy, as you can see on the left-hand side with the Chinese GDP, you see these 
brutal drop in growth, but then a very rapid rebound. And we expect the end of the year to be about 8%. So a lot of growth in the beginning of the year, slowing down and then continuing to trend in, uh, into next year. So doing very well. It's also a large shock in India, uh, which means that growth in India should, uh, should be somewhat weak initially. But in the next year, according to the IMF, it should be around 11.5%. It's also South Korea, it's Taiwan. It's a lot of economy doing very well. It's the United States. And eventually, with a lag, it's also the European Union. So that's this big reflation trade. If we focus on the right graph, you have an, an idea of the unemployment rate. And as you can see, it's been dropping very quickly and should continue to drop relatively quickly so that it reaches roughly 3.5% to 3.7% uh, next year. So very low level of unemployment, very supportive for risk taking. And of course, all of this being reflected in the yield curve. So you just mentioned the reflation trade, and that's something that we keep reading and seeing and hearing about all the time. So maybe if we move across to Laurent and Laurent, you know, for, from your perspective, what does that reflation trade actually mean? This, this monetary and fiscal stimuli, uh, which uh, we are all over the place, by the way, plus the vaccine rolling out and help the economies to reopen. So all these have led to better economic outlook, and also some repricing of some assets. So as you can see on, on the next slide, we, we had really many ingredients to see yields going up. But what, what was really striking was the speed of this rise that caught many investors by surprise. So we have more pronounced uh, in the US where, where, the, where yields were down. Uh, excuse me, yields were up. So global, global bonds were, were down. Uh, and also a spillover effect in emerging markets. Uh, on the other side, high yield and lower bond duration, lower duration bonds fare better. Equities were up as even investors anticipate better earnings going forward and more value-oriented markets such as Europe or Japan did better than emerging markets or US. But it was to, to mention, uh, Paul, that uh, some sectors rallied a lot. So we had first financial driven by better economic outlook, so better prospect for the clients and better margin from this yield curve steepening. Uh, second sector doing, doing quite good, uh, energy, which benefited from, from rising oil price. More mm -hmm. demand and, and supply was also stabilized by, by OPEC plus members. And then a third sector, airlines, Usually those two sectors, energy airlines, do not move in tandem, but this time with the reopening of the economy and probably most of us who want to, to travel soon. Uh, so those, these airline sectors was up uh, more than 30%. So market is not driven anymore by a few stocks, but the market breadth is improving. Exactly, so we're, we're seeing this you know, you, you mentioned that oil, but other commodities as well, wheat, grains, uh, all across the board, we've seen uh, prices going up. And um, I guess that brings in the, the risk of, of interest rate hikes, you know, perhaps less so in Europe, but certainly in, in the US. So, you know, as a, as a bond investor, you did just touch on it as, as you were going through that slide, you know, but what can you do as a bond investor to protect yourself from that potential risk of, of interest rate, rate rises? Yeah. Yeah, correct, Paul. If this scenario is set to continue, yields will move upwards and spread uh, are supported by economic rebound. 
So then solution with credit risk, but lower duration should be well. Safer asset, asset class such as cover bonds have proved to be more immune to duration risk, as you can see on, on the graph. Yeah. We can first compare cover bonds in, in green relative to uh, government index in, in light blue, which were much more sensitive to yield movement. And the same applies for lower duration cover bonds in dark blue relative to Govis, which is the, the pinky line there. So you see that cover bonds uh, have fared very well in this, in this environment. So cover bonds have the advantage of being very safe by, by a cover pool of assets and yielding higher than government bonds. And cherry on the cake, we have a solution called cover bond opportunities where the duration is edged and credit risk is amplified. So typically a solution fit for the current environment and which has done extremely well on a year-to-date basis. So, so that's one asset class within fixed income uh, that we could consider. Are there any other options? Yeah, there are other options such as financial debt, which, which uh, has interesting features. So this financial debt is, is actually our, our bonds um, issued by European Union financial institution with different seniority, different mm -hmm. credit risk embedded in it. They have a lower duration, three to 3.5 years. And what is true for equity is also for bonds. So better margins, better business going forward. And on top of it, banks and insurance companies are better capitalized than in the past. So as you can see on the right-hand side graph, when yields are going up, such as I highlighted in the, the four light green phases, uh, you see that the performance of um, uh, financial high yield uh, index has been rather good. And on the left-hand side table, uh, on a calendar year basis, you can see that uh, when the, we have changing rates, such as in 2013, when yields were up 64 basis points, the asset class was up 13% and the same in 2017, when the rates were also going up, uh, financial index was, was up 9%. Yeah. Now, a lot of my clients uh, are talking to me about, you know, the hunt for yield. It's still something that's on the table. What are, you know, what could we do in that sort of space? You know, if we, we're looking for yields. Yeah, well, if you think, yeah, this yields increase is a bit overdone, then you might find long-term opportunities with, with the usual suspects or a yield or where credit risk is, is still present, but also interest rate risk. So in that segment, emerging market debt has, has suffered more recently, but not particularly from a spread perspective, but mm -hmm. more from this duration angle. So the tailwind for emerging market debt are attractive yield with a bit less volatility than high yield, as you can see on the left-hand side graph. So we, we have here the, the different uh, current yield provided by this asset class, and then the boxes are the standard deviation for this uh, average uh, or this, yeah, the average yield of the last uh, 10 years. Yeah. Uh, then we also have support from improving medium-term growth outlook and outlook and the vaccine rollout. And also bear in mind that the Federal Reserve should not taper before uh, 2022. And in this, in this emerging market space, we have also this global trade support. 
And all that is supportive for commodity exporters countries. And those tailwinds for emerging markets is also true for Chinese bonds. On top, Chinese bonds benefit from the opening of China's onshore market and their inclusion in many bond indices, with yield at around 3.3%, and duration is also uh, lower at 5.5. They offer, they offer good diversification benefit, as, as you can see on the, the right-hand side table, uh, if one can bear currency risk. So you see the correlation of Chinese government bonds relative to other asset classes, other fixed income asset classes, or other equities. So very low correlation, so diversification benefits in your portfolio. Mm -hmm. So the yield effect, it's not just having an impact on fixed income, is it? It's also on the equity side of the equation as yeah. well. So maybe that's something we could touch on uh, now. Well, first, you, indeed, the, the higher yields are, are really a, a reflection of positive economic data. Yeah. And these higher yields are pulling with them cyclical stocks and financial. Uh, and we have witnessed a huge rotation shift from growth to value and from tech to small cap. So you see on the, on the, on the graph on, on this slide, on the left-hand side, mm -hmm. the relative performance of value versus growth in light blue, mm -hmm. uh, whereas in orange, you have the um, government uh, real, which has started to, to pick up uh, since the start of this year. So really a kind of a, a huge rotation shift in equity market. And, and the same applies for from on the right hand side graph, you see the relative performance of small cap to technology I, uh, shown here by the uh, Russell, uh, by the NASDAQ 100. So will it continue? Well, my, my, my take is that in a sustainable reflation environment, uh, we believe that more diversification is needed in investors portfolio. Okay, so that being the case, then, you know, what should we potentially be considering for our equity part of our portfolios? Yeah, I think currently investors are, are looking to more to valuations, but also at stability and predictability of earnings or cash flows. Yeah. So solution with, with quality oriented companies are doing better for the time being. Then there is a huge valuation gap, as you can see on, on the slide and the left-hand side graph. Uh, and this valuation gap has only started to unlock. So mm -hmm. here you are represent, you have the, the stable equity solution, uh, 12 months forward price earnings. And in light blue, you have the same for the MSCI world. And you see the huge difference in valuation between those two solutions. And on the right-hand side graph, you, you see the same in terms of earnings yields. So we were talking earlier, Paul, on the yield hunting in the fixed income area. This is happening also on the equity side. So we have the, the stable equity solution, which shows a higher yielding uh, characteristics. Yeah, it's interesting. This, this chart is something that I think, you know, Klaus Worm showed us and, and Asbjörn Trana Hansen from our multi-assets team um and they were saying exactly this that at some point there's going to be an inflection point people are going to rotate out of growth into value and it's going to unlock a, a lot of value as, as a result of that yeah, um, there's there is still some a lot of value in them yeah we'll keep an eye on that <laughs> and see how that evolves now 
the other thing that we've seen a lot of is, is thematic solutions have been super popular over the last few years. I just wanted to get your take in terms of, you know, which themes you think will continue to, you know, perform well um, in, in the months and years ahead. Yeah, I think going forward, the investor could position portfolio to benefit from, you know, government spending and infrastructure, not to, not to name it. Uh, <laughs> remember the Biden plan? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, infrastructure is sensitive to, to different growth drivers. To name a few, we have decarbonization, transition to clean energy, data growth, transportation sector. And another important feature in this environment is that they can pass through inflation cost to consumer due to the to mon monopolistic nature of assets that ensure this, this pricing power. Mm. So our global listed uh, solution has an easy integration. Mm. And like the global stable uh, solution, it offers compelling valuation. Mm -hmm. uh, also, 25% discount to global equities on historical BDA multiples. Also, 25% discount to, to private uh, infra, uh, private market values of infrastructure. Yeah. And also a premium dividend yield to corporate bond yields, which has been historically below. So in, in, in summary, listed infrastructure is, is, flat, is quite cheap. Yeah. And there's another sort of mega theme that we saw, uh, it, you know, it'd been talked about before, but last year we really saw, saw, you know, clients moving money into this theme. It's a theme you, you know, don't you? Uh, I don't you know what you're talking about, Paul. <laughs> Let's go for ESG. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Thank you yeah. For, for the reminder. Yeah, no, ESG trend is easier to continue, of course, with, with new re regulation and more importantly, the shift in people minds that we can change through our investment without compromising returns. So that's, that's really key, I think. Not only strategy focus, focusing on the environmental issues, but also the one focusing on the social themes will see massive investment. So there is clearly an investment gap of two to four billion a year in that theme. And our investment team has worked on a global social empowerment solution that is focusing on social needs such as sanitation, food house, uh, food house uh, affordability, inclusion such as uh, human capital development, and then empowerment such as health and wellness. Yeah. Now there's, an, there's another theme as well that we're quite bullish on right now, and that's um, emerging markets. So I just wondered if you could give us the case for emerging markets. Why are we bullish on, on EM? Yeah, we already talked about the emerging market debt. The same applies for equities. Yeah. Um, equities are still attractive thanks to improving earnings, even though at a lower extent than before. So if we can have the slide, you will see that these, these uh, valuations around the globe. Um, so here represented by, by boxes where you have the, the mean and the max valuations of the last 10 years, and then the, the, the dots represent the current situation. So there you can see the relative attractiveness of each region relative to the others and also relative to their history. And we can see that emerging equities are uh, cheaper than other regions and 
uh, okay, a bit more expensive than the, the average of the last 10 years, but still it's not at the maximum level. So with, with all what's going on uh, in, on, the, on the global economic front, uh, we think that uh, emerging markets are, are, are attractive. And they benefit from better growth, as Sebastian mentioned at the beginning, uh, from Asia, such as China, South Korea, India, but also for, it's also positive for, for commodity producers. And remember, we have also this free Asian trade agreement signed November last year, which uh, is, is buoying a bit the, the trade uh, uh, in Asia for the moment. And they also benefit from a weak dollar, but maybe I'll let uh, Sebastian uh, explain that. Sure. So if you focus on the graph, it, it looks a bit complicated, but you see two lines moving uh, together. And what these two lines tell you is that when the dollar weakens, then typically uh, you have an outperformance of emerging markets versus the United States. And why is that? Because in a normal environment, the dollar always has a certain tendency to weaken versus emerging markets. And we're thinking mostly about Asia Pacific. And it's being reinforced by the fact that growth is stronger in, in Asia than will be in the United States or for that matter, in, uh, in Europe. And so we see this uh, virtuous circle, which has been referred to sometimes as a, as a smile, which can last for several years uh, and then go through a period of crisis. Um, but it, it is the, the, the phase that we're expecting. So, so all of these ideas that we're talking about this morning, uh, you know, they're all based on our sort of base case scenario, if you like. Um, but what could challenge this? If you were playing devil's advocate, what would you say are the risks involved in the current setup that we're describing? So if, if we focus on the next slide, what you have is, uh, is an idea of the things that can go actually wrong. Uh, and that is basically if you overdo it. So for example, the <laughs> US government is proposing a $3 trillion package. Uh, that's on a, a 1.9 trillion package. That's a lot of money going through the economy. So what can happen is that the market looks at this and wonders, how are you going to finance it? Can you tax people sufficiently to achieve this? And the answer is partially so. Can you pass uh, this three trillion package? The answer is maybe. Uh, and and so the, the outcome is that the yield curve has a certain tendency to steepen. As it steepens, it hurts some asset classes which are overly expensive. And so we see some form of corrections. So if the US federal government overdoes it, uh, it can be uh, quite negative for some assets, not all, but some assets could be negatively impacted. But it does mean that they're willing to run an economy uh, which is red hot, which is what they've announced since the beginning. And they're being consequent on this and co in continuing on this. And a red hot economy typically is very good uh, for equities, for example. Uh, not all of them, but cyclicals, for example, would benefit very strongly. So it's a bit of good and, and a bit of bad at the same time. I think the most important thing is our viewers keep tuning in each week and we'll keep them abreast of the situation. Uh, um, Laurent, we, before we wrap up, you did have one last slide you wanted to show us. Yeah, if, if, we, if we are in this environment, uh, you know, the risk, uh, we, we are too late in, in raising rates or economy is too hot, then solution that can move quickly from high to low duration and while also moving credit exposure are a good alternative to, to semi-active portfolio management. What, what I mean here is a benchmark solution. Um, so extra performance in this risk-based solution are, are, co are coming out of also the, the currency market. And then this, this active management is really key to, uh, 
uh, I think, to navigate in this environment. Great. Good. Right. So, uh, as usual, we have our, our wrap up slide, the key takeaways. So uh, we'll just pull that up now. And then at the end, I'll just ask you if you've got any additional comments to add before we leave. So first of all, um, inflation and yields um, reach uh, reaching a plateau after this, this rise that we've seen uh, very, very quickly. We've talked about the reflationary uh, sustainable environment, which is favorable for uh, credit risk with low duration or less duration, uh, stable, perhaps value oriented solutions. Uh, and within that, our stable equities would be ideal. And then ESG trend that we don't see going away anytime soon. And of course, the government spending that would uh, support the global listed infrastructure solutions. Then we have, of course, the emerging markets. We've had this Asia-led rebound where they've come out of COVID quicker than the rest of the world. And uh, we're seeing that in the numbers as well. Should the economy overshoot, then it's good to have flexible solutions where you, know, you don't have to worry about reallocating uh, within your portfolio where, that, where the, the portfolio manager does that for you. And so really the conclusion is, is diversify, but you know, picking the right asset classes within that diversification. That would be my summary. Is, is there anything to add on that, uh, either Sebastian or Law? You said it all, Paul. Ah, congratulations. <laughs> Guys, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Um, that's been great. And hopefully there's some uh, food for thought for our viewers out there today. That was a lot indeed. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Next week, uh, on the 31st of March, uh, we will be talking Chinese equities, um, and that will be with the team from Manulife, who are based out in Hong Kong. So please don't miss that. In the meantime, you can always go to our microsite. That's the Stay Alert microsite that you'll find at nordia.lu. And there you'll find all of the past interviews that we've done, podcasts, uh, Q&As as well. Don't forget, we also have nordiaassetmanagement.com. That's another website with full of resources and uh, also worth a visit. That's it for this week. I'll see you next Wednesday.